Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Welcome everyone, I'm Dr. Bruno Fernandes and we are here for another episode of our Broad Eye uh, podcast. Like today, I have the pleasure of having uh, Christian Gutierrez, which is the director at 2020 Therapeutics, a uh, spin-off uh, Verily slash uh, Google. Christian, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Bruno. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for accepting our invite. I'm really looking forward to a conversation. Uh, I always like to, I mean, me having a, like a medical ophthalmology background, I love to talk about people that are in the field, but with a completely different background. And like, I, I feel like I learned a lot. <laughs> Great. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. So on that, like, why don't you just start like talking a bit about yourself? Like, I mean, what, what's, uh, what's your background? What's your training? Where did you go to study? Where were you born? Like all, all the personal stuff. <laughs> sure. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a convoluted story, but I'll, I'll try to make it, make it short. So, you know, by, by training, uh, I'm an engineer by training. Uh, I have a background in electrical engineering and biomedical uh, engineering. Um, I did most of my undergraduate work at, uh, at Caltech um, and then my doctoral work, my PhD at, at USC. And then uh, sprinkled in between my undergraduate work, I uh, also majored in business economics and, and management. And then uh, while I was getting my, my PhD at the University of Southern California, USC, I also spent a significant amount of time at the USC uh, Marshall School of Business, you know, uh, trying to get an MBA, but they, <laughs> they wouldn't let me sort of get the MBA and PhD at the same time. So I, I stopped short and got a um, sort of a, a certificate program that focused uh, solely on entrepreneurship and, and tech entrepreneurship specifically. I, I suppose pr prior to my, my, my training, I've been in California for uh, the better part of 15 years in LA uh, mostly, and then up here in the Bay Area for about the last six or seven years. But I actually grew up internationally. I grew up abroad. I grew up in the Middle East in countries such as Qatar, Oman, and Saudi Arabia. I spent uh, uh, 16 years there. So I, I grew up abroad. But my, I'm originally from, uh, my family's from Costa Rica. So um, all right, Latino. love Costa Rica. I've been there a few times already. <laughs> Excellent. That's a beautiful, beautiful country, beautiful yeah. country. Um, my whole extended family is, is there. So yeah, a bit of a, a diverse um, background uh, following uh, sort of graduate school. Uh, actually, let me, let me talk a little bit about that. So I, I did my PhD in biomedical engineering and I was focused on bringing together my training in electrical engineering and then my interest in the medical space. Uh, and I ended up applying that in the field of ophthalmology. And so I, um, one of my advisors uh, was Mark Humayan at USC, who's a world-renowned retinal surgeon. So I did a lot of research focused on uh, what at the time was a, a big project, which was the second site uh, Argus uh, retinal implant. And uh, we were more on the, the research side. So I was specifically looking at technologies, for example, that could take uh, the implants that were in patients at the time that had, I think, a four by four array of stimulating electrodes that would stimulate the retina and produce phosphines that the patient could use then kind of to, to gain some, some form of functional vision. Again, this is for patients with retinitis pigmentosa. And I was focused on the technology side, um, bringing together my elect electronics background to see if we could integrate that even further and extend that from a four by four array or, or 16 electrodes, let's say, to something that had something more along the lines of a thousand electrodes within a small area of about a five millimeter by five millimeter area, which was the size of the implant. So the idea would be to condense more the electrodes, right? Because the area is quite limited. 
Exactly. The, the area was essentially the same. So all we're doing is condensing the, electro, the electrodes and integrating the technologies necessary to do that. So how do you how do you apply the necessary microfabrication techniques to make sure that you can shrink things down, you know, to that level of precision? You know, th- there's new processes that are required to do that. How do you keep the the implant flexible and still thin? Uh, and so all the process technology behind that was something I spent a lot of time focusing on. The other the other part I spent uh, time focusing on was developing novel sensors. Uh, and so what I realized was that these implants were going inside the eye, um, and the surgeons were were implanting them, but but were doing it just by feel. There was no other feedback about how well these implants were sitting in the eye. Are they, you know, in close apposition to the tissue uh, that it's stimulating? It was really highly, highly variable. And so one of the things that I developed was novel sensors that we could put on the back of these implants and train uh, surgeons to do the implantation technique, but have feedback about how well the implant is um, lying inside the eye. Previously, they were sort of blind to it and just doing it by feel. Uh, and that also required development of novel microsensors and microsensor technology. So that was my sort of R&D background. And again, also spending time at the business school. The business school at USC was really interesting because it got me exposed to, um, to many entrepreneurs uh, you know, that would come and speak, uh, talk about their experience in, in totally different fields, you know, in an app or in the, the car space or in just totally different industries. And it was great to understand how they think about building a business, right? And so- you know, for example, one of the things that you learn or I, I learned there was that the average business owner, when they launch a, a company, is spending no more than about ten dollars to $15,000 on average. And you look at the medical space and a lot of people uh, say, well, I need to get to VC funding and have how many millions of dollars right away? Otherwise, I can't start a company. Yeah. And it, that, that difference was just so stark to me. And it really opened my eyes to how people start companies. And the other big thing was uh, learning from their failures. What, what didn't work? What did they try? What are some of the alternatives they, uh, they were creative about and how they got their company launched, right? How did they deal with customers? How did they get pre-orders, things of that nature? So that really sparked my interest in, in startups and innovation. And, uh, and then coming out of school, that's what I ended up doing. I ended up co-founding a company uh, called Fluid Synchrony focused on implantable drug delivery. It, it related to ophthalmology or any, any, any medical specialty? So initially it was focused on, on the eye, but we decided to, to broaden it beyond the eye. Mm-hmm. And just really uh, because the, the, the goal of that company was to develop very small, very low power drug delivery uh, technology. And the eye is great, and there's applications in the eye, certainly, but going to the eye is, is really a, a pretty high-stakes game. <laughs> yeah. And so in order to get first customers, in order to get you know, early traction, uh, one of the strategies we employed was to say, who else needs this? Uh, and what was interesting is we found out that um, many you know, contract research organizations that are doing research broadly with, with drugs and are experimenting constantly with new uh, new molecular entities, new APIs, new drugs. They need a, a really rapid way to screen through the losers to identify the winners or the ones that have promise um, and then pass those to the next stage. So if you go very, very early into the drug development pipeline, you know, beyond sort of the, the chemistry and entity uh, formulation side, but you're going to the first tests, that's where there's actually a bottleneck because a lot of these new drugs that are under development require very specific delivery mechanisms uh, very specific delivery schedules. Um, and believe it or not, a lot of this work is done by technicians injecting these, these drugs. Um, and they usually use some sort of uh, you know, rodent model or something like this. And um, depending on the complexity of the, of the regimen, 
those experiments get very expensive and they get very tough to do. And there's just not enough technicians in the world to go through all the different types of scenarios that these guys would like to do. So we, we ended up um, uh, offering a solution that was an implantable uh, drug delivery device um, for that market. And so the idea was we could have an array of experiments ongoing with one operator, basically at a workstation, uh, digitizing the entire drug delivery experiment in whatever way they wanted, because the little, little uh, pumps that we were developing were wirelessly controlled and you could control an array of them. So one person could perform a wide array of experiments. Yeah, so that's, that's my question. So it's not like a, like a slow release device. It's actually like a microdosing controllable uh, implant. Exactly right. It was not a it was not a passive. It's not a materials play. This mm -hmm. was an active active micro pump system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which borrowed from my background in electronics and my background in micro technology. And how small are those? Well, they're about the size of a, of a dime. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a, a few different sizes depending on the model of interest, but they the, the smallest was about the size of a dime. It had a payload of around 200, uh, 200 microliters. So a pretty small uh, payload, but. The models are small and you don't need a lot of a lot of drug. They were also refillable. So mm -hmm. if they lasted a day or two, you could come back and, and refill it and then have another couple of days of experiment. So from 200 microliters all the way up to, you know, the biggest ones that we were working on were on the, around two milliliters of, of drug. And these were for larger, larger models. That's cool. So what attracted you to ophthalmological space? Because most people that I've, we've interviewed that like are doing anything related that don't have a medical background, like, I mean, they have a bit of a story that attracted them to it. Sure, yeah. I have one. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I think it was just, um, I guess maybe part of it is that uh, I, I personally have pretty poor eyesight. Uh, I have a prescription of, I think, uh, uh, plus, plus seven. Uh, and so it's not a it's not a very common prescription. So without yeah. without without corrective lenses or without contact lenses, I I am uh, pretty legally <laughs> legally blind without correction. Mm -hmm. So I heavily rely on on my um, you know vision correcting aids, whether it's glasses or contact lenses. But you know I think that was part of it. I think the other part of it was uh, I was looking for a way to apply you know my training in electronics and and micro technologies. And I you know there's a big space there for for example semiconductor. Uh, creating chips and things like that, but it's really, you know, that's that's a couple steps removed from having, I think, a personal impact on somebody or having a visible impact on somebody where you see that there's a, a connection. You know, chips go into into cars and computers and all sorts of stuff, microwaves. Um, and I wanted something a little bit more, you know, where I could see the impact. And I I did a lot of soul searching for about six months about where I wanted to go with my sort of career and my training. And that's where I came across, you know, these technologies that, for example, Second Sight and, and, and USC was developing. And uh, it just fascinated me that with, with microelectronics, with microtechnologies, you could have an impact on somebody's sight. Somebody that's legally blind or is completely blind, you could offer them a way to, to have some functional vision through the use of technologies, of microtechnologies specifically. And that really, I think, spoke to me. And... Um, and it really was the foundation of how I made a decision to, to get my, my doctorate in the area. I, I sort of went to the world's leaders in this area. Uh, there's a, you know, uh, Stanford had a good program. There was a program in, uh, in Germany as well. There's a few programs around the world. And uh, I went to the, the leaders there and said, hey, you know, I'm interested in this. You know, would you be able to um, you know, offer research that would make sense with my background? And, uh, and when I ended up speaking uh, to the folks at USC, uh, you know, my other advisor, Ellis, Ellis Meng, who's an expert in microtechnology, 
and then Mark Amayan, who's a world leading retinal uh, expert, you know, that combination within one place kind of made it a no brainer for me to go there and, uh, and explore. And so I, you know, that's a great decision I think I made and it really aligned with my, with my interest, but that's how I sort of navigated into, into ophthalmology. Yeah, no, I mean, having an ophthalmological background myself doesn't surprise me that much, you know, and people get marveled by what they can do. I think mm-hmm. returning sight to someone, it's the closest thing that we can do to magic. And like, I mean, the, the, it's yeah. so rewarding when you see, like, I mean, the way patients respond to it. That's right. That's right. Uh, okay, back to, back to work. Uh, so you started your own company. And what happened then? Because eventually you joined at Google, and I want to save some time to talk about that. But what happened, like, to to from one from A to B? Like, sure. Were you acquired? Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is um, this was around 20, 2010. Um, and we ended up, you know, growing that that company from from really uh, just two two people to about I think we had about twelve uh, people about you know two two years in. Um, we hired several engineers. We were raising money. Um, you know, we had operations ongoing, we had customers, uh, so we had some early revenue, um, we'd raised, I think three or so million dollars. So the company was, you know, was moving forward. It was, it was going, uh, actually pretty, uh, pretty great. And, uh, then around, I think 2013 or the end of uh, late 2013, I don't know if you recall, but Google, Google X, which was the, uh, sort of exploratory lab of, of Google at the time, uh, made an announcement that they were working on smart contact lenses. Uh, and at the time, the, the major announcement was around diabetes, uh, you know, sampling glucose in the blood and, and having smart lenses for, for diabetics so they wouldn't have to prick their fingers. Um, and that just really intrigued me because, you know, we were at the, at the startup actively looking for partners, actively looking for, you know, investors, um, people that maybe would want to acquire all, all of the above. And, um, you know, I ended up uh, connecting with with a, a former colleague from Caltech that was at uh, Google X working on, you know, working on some other projects. I think Google Glass and some of the other projects they had there. And I, I just sort of started exploring and said, "Hey, I heard this announcement of the the lenses. Um, does that mean that Google X is getting into medical devices? Because that's pretty exciting. And if so, you know, are they interested in other technologies? Are they interested in uh, micro technologies for drug delivery? Are they interested in uh, other types of medical devices. Cause we're, you know, I, I work at a medical device company and we founded it and um, there, there's maybe room to explore. And it was interesting that, you know, he said, well, uh, we have a pretty focused effort on these smart lenses and we're really going deep into it. It's not a, a cursory thing. We're not necessarily looking for a bunch of other medical device technologies right now. Um, but why don't you come in and chat and uh, I can show you a little bit about what we're doing and see if it, if it makes any sense. I said, well, you know, I get the opportunity to go to Google and, and hang out and, and talk to somebody who can share a little bit more. That's great. So I ended up um, doing that. And sort of one thing led to another. And uh, th- this sort of colleague of mine said, you know, we are really trying to get this program going in a heavy way. And there's a, a lot of challenges in smart lenses. We need people who have experience in microtechnology, in integrating electronics into very strange kind of uh, environments and who have a passion for working in the eye and solving, solving problems, like really challenging problems. Would you at all be interested? And so he sort of flipped the table on me and I, you know, I wasn't there to, to look for a, a job, a job. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, the need was there. And I, I all, all, all of a sudden understood that they were having uh, challenges in, in doing all these integration, uh, you know, really tough integration problems that they were trying to solve. And, 
you know, obviously I'd done my, my PhD work in, in a really challenging space. Integration was a key issue and developing novel technology for that. So I could see exactly how it made sense. And in my head, I already kind of knew probably the challenges that they had ahead of them. Um, but it was a really tough decision because the startup was going really well, you know, and, um, uh, you know, but, but I think what, what changed the, the tide for me was um, I was able to see a little bit about the effort that, that Google X was putting into this. And I was just blown away by the resources. I was blown away by the, you know, the, the seriousness at which they were taking the problem. So they weren't trying to, you know, um, get into the contact lens space very, very lightly and playing around with, you know, silicones and casting some things and making some, some prototypes. Like they went all in, like they were, you know, they were at a stage where they were producing like legit contact lenses on a, you know, on a pilot line, a contact lens pilot line, something that you would not expect to exist at Google. Right. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, and so I saw that, I saw, you know, many other areas that they were, they were developing. And I said, wow, this is, this is real. This is something they're really um, getting into. And so, um, you know, I had to, I had to sort of jump at this opportunity. You only get a few opportunities in life to, to have an impact and work on really yeah. exciting things like this. And so I, decided to leave but it was a really tough tough decision uh at that at that point in my life yeah like on, only people that had to make those abrupt like career shifts like understand the the struggle it is like i mean to make such decisions exactly so what do those lenses do is, is it like a reservoir to deliver drugs like is it what do they want to accomplish with those smart lenses exactly so i think this is this information is all um, public but um mm -hmm. you know the 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 goal for the smart lenses at, at, uh, at Google was one to develop a lens for, for the diabetes community that could sense blood glucose levels in the eye in the tear oh, yeah. fluid. I remember that one. Yep. Right. Exactly. So that people would have to prick their, uh, their fingers less. Um, the other, uh, actually project that maybe is less known, um, but is also uh, public. It just didn't receive the necessary sort of visibility as the, as the others was a project for uh, accommodation. So for, for presbyopes, you know, and so the, 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 the goal there was to create a smart lens that could automatically change uh, its focal power. And so the idea was that if you're a presbyope and you are having trouble focusing near and you are either wearing bifocals, bifocal contact lenses, readers, all of the above, that all of those are a lifestyle compromise because I don't think anybody uh, of that age loves carrying around glasses, loves wearing both bifocals. Um, and so it's been sort of this nagging thing that if you talk to anybody over the age of about 45, they all sort of raise their hand. It's like, oh yeah, I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm sort of on the on early onset presbyope and I hate, I hate it. I hate having yeah. to wear my glasses. I hate having to. And so I think there was a really big opening there. And so the second project, the second big project, project was a smart lens That with automatic accommodation for the presbyopia market. Um, and in fact, that, that is the project that I, I joined Google X to, to start. Uh, there was already a team focused on the glucose side, um, but I, I joined to focus on the presbyopia project. Uh, and then there was a third project that was an intraocular lens, which is really, this is really a sort of a more far out one. It was very early stage, uh, but an, an adjustable intraocular lens. And so those were the three big projects that were within the, the smart, let's say, smart lens space uh, within, within Google uh, when I joined Google X, when I joined. Uh, and that's what the partnership, we had a, a longstanding partnership with, with Alcon. Um, that's where that partnership was, was focused on. Um, and so we, you know, we, we spent several years developing those technologies to a point where 
um, you know, they're, they're sort of at, at a clinical stage now, but they're not ready for the market or they haven't received approval uh, at this point. And uh, out of pure curiosity here, like how it is like to work at Google, because like Google has this like almost like image of almost being like the, the Willy Wonka factory, you know, yeah. uh, it's like an amazing place to work. And, you know, it, you have like ping pong tables and like people dress the way they want it. Like, I mean, so uh, what's the culture like inside uh, Google? Is it like really the way, you know, like I mean, we, we perceive and very different from the traditional corporate world? Well, you know, it's a tough question. I think you ask everybody and they're going to have a different answer. Um, especially Google is a big, big, big company now. I think the last number I saw was over 150, 160,000 employees. Um, when I joined, it was about 30,000, <laughs> 30, 30,000 employees, which is still a big, big company. Yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it's, it's several orders of magnitude, you know, larger now. Uh, and so I think it depends a little bit where you end up going within Google. You know, Google obviously has its core business around advertising and search. I think if you're in that um, part of Google, you know, you're going you're gonna to probably see that there's a lot of, uh, you know, core functions in the company that are uh, more difficult to change. There's more uh, hesitancy to, you know, um, or more, not hesitancy, but there, there's more understanding that that is a core business and we have to improve it not put it in jeopardy or risk it or, you know, do all those things. And so you have a slightly different, um, it's a well-oiled machine, right? So you have a slightly different experience if you're in that group. If you're in a group like, um, like Google Maps or some of these other sort of, uh, you know, really interesting and, and exciting add-ons that Google sort of eventually, you know, really, really uh, went deep into, then, you know, you're, you're exciting and you're exploring how to add these functionalities to the e Google ecosystem and how to, you know, generate more value and what are the other things that that can add? Does it integrate with search? Does it integrate with its other businesses? So it's a little bit more freewheeling and, and exciting and, you know, but also if it fails, it, you know, doesn't necessarily matter that much to the core business of Google. So you have more latitude. Um, and then you have the really sort of front edge of what Google's doing, right? This is the, the, the stuff in AI, quantum computing. And then, and then there was Google X at the time, which was an even more of an offshoot. It was, it was designed to be a lab on its own that had, for example, secured access <laughs> from, from the other parts of Google. So not everybody at Google could actually enter the Google X labs, believe it or not. It was, it was sort of with its own uh, sort of security And within that lab, you had really like kind of crazy offshoot. It had nothing to do with, with search, really, right? It was, it was smart contact lenses. At the time, it was self-driving cars. Uh, we had, uh, you know, flying, uh, uh, sort of flying kites to generate power, um, satellite, internet. I mean, there's a whole host of kind of crazy projects within that Google X lab. By the way, most of these projects people don't even know about because, you know, uh, you want to you wanna experiment in these projects, but if they fail we expect most of them to fail, yeah. right? But that's a, that's a tough, uh, you know, tough business model for the outside world to really like understand about, about Google, right? But projects were failing all the time. And that's kind of the point, right? Yeah. You wanted to fail many projects so you can get to one that seemed to have legs. And then you say, oh, wow, but this one could actually move forward. And those are the ones that people knew about. So they knew about, let's say six or seven projects, but I would say there's probably 60 or 70 that ended up, you know, having some effort and then going somewhere, but then eventually saying, this is not actually where we think it's going to go. And then that would be shelved. But that culture was, was a culture within Google X labs, which is slightly different than I think the culture at the rest of, of Google. So my answer is it depends, but within the experience that I had, it was, it was really exciting. I mean, I was working next to people that were, 
machine learning experts, uh, people that had material science backgrounds, medical backgrounds, microtechnology backgrounds. It was a really super diverse group that you need to work on these kind of experimental projects. And it was, you know, it was a little bit freewheeling. You know, there are slides in the offices. Yes, there are beanbags in the offices. There are ping pong tables. Um, but you do that because you're in an innovation culture, right? You, you have discussions over a pool table game about how you might solve the next integration challenge, right? And so um, you brainstorm. It's a lot of brainstorming. And so those are the environments that tend to promote that rather than people sitting, you know, at their desk for, for the whole day. It doesn't really promote that very much. Yeah, no, in, I mean, in, indeed. And, and on the getting wrong to get it right, like sort of approach like that has, I mean, tech and, and like medical research has a lot in common, right? Because like drug discovery, it's, it's a similar process, right? Like, I mean, you keep trying different targets and different receptors, like trying different drugs. And, you know, like, I mean, you're going to fail a lot until you actually get something that works. I think it's, it's the trial and error method is underestimated <laughs> and then people people realize how much is used that's right that's right yeah mm -hmm. and uh okay so fast forward now i mean you're you're now director of the 2020 therapeutics is uh it's it's still related to google somehow right like i mean would you like to explain a little bit on how did that work and and like what i mean what's the point of like, starting this company and the, the mission behind it sure uh, absolutely so um, you know, fast forward a few years and, uh, and Google overall ended up going through a bit of a, a, a restructuring that people are familiar with now. I think, you know, Alphabet was formed and Alphabet became, you know, sort of the umbrella company, uh, uh, which now sort of Google is one of the, is the main and the biggest sort of company within Alphabet. Um, and then other companies ended up spinning out. So, for example, Verily Life Sciences. So Verily Life Sciences, uh, previously Google Life Sciences, um, ended up being the life science arm of Google. And by the way, Verily Life Sciences, the, the, the first projects that formed Verily Life Sciences came out of Google X. So that included the Smart Lens project and it includes several other projects, for example, in robotic surgery uh, and in some others that, that we had um, within Google X that were sort of being incubated, those projects ended up coming out of Google X and forming the, the first round of, of seed projects that went into Verily Life Sciences. And Verily is, is huge right now, right? I mean, what's the scale of it in terms of like employees? Or... Oh man, yeah, Verily has grown a lot. I think, you know, my last check, they were probably uh, above above a thousand employees. They're probably mm -hmm. on their way to, to 12, 1300 at this point. Mm -hmm. Um Right. And, and Verily formed, I think, with about 50 people initially. <laughs> so, so it's grown a lot in the last few years. Uh, and, and then along with Verily, there was the, the Waymo. You know, Waymo, the self-driving car, also came out of Google X, but now it's its own independent company. So, so Google, Verily, Waymo, and I think three or four others, they're all sort of sister companies to each other, and they all sit under uh, Alphabet now. Uh -huh. um, and so Verily, so then I, I ended up moving from Google X into Verily, and I've been at Verily since its inception. Um, since it was first formed. I was at Google X for about two years uh, and then Verily formed and Verily's uh, been around now for about uh, five or six years. And I've been at Verily the, the entire time up until about last year. Um, but the projects continued under, under Verily. And then Verily actually ended up expanding further uh, within, within specifically the healthcare domain. And so what Verily was, um, you know, its mission was to organize the world's health information. Um, and so that was sort of the mission that Verily was trying to tackle broadly, and they've really diversified in a variety of areas, not just medical devices or exploratory innovations. Now they're in, 
you know, digital clinical trials, they're in uh, offering solutions to health systems, and they, they have a broad portfolio of offerings now. And it's a really exciting, really exciting company. Uh, and so, that, that, you know, they're growing. I think, you know, uh, as the company grew and expanded its sort of ambition in the, in the digital health area and healthcare generally, um, it became almost necessary to think about where are the specific projects within Verily that uh, could could use a different structure, for example. So if Verily is really targeting these, you know, these certain areas of, of business, for example, uh, digital clinical trials, um, and they want to focus in that, uh, does that, what role does, for example, medical devices play in that? And I think it plays a, a big role. Um, but all the different portfolio of technologies that were within Verily initially, including smart lenses and others, do all of those make sense? And so you have to look at that holistically with a broader ambition of Verily. And in those cases, uh, it may not make sense to, to continue to have them be part of the core portfolio. And so Verily's model has been very unique and, and uh, they've been strategic in, in establishing other partnerships uh, outside of Google and, and, uh, uh, and outside of Verily, right? So Verily is known for having partnerships with m- major pharmaceutical companies. Um, they're also known for bringing in inve- outside investment. So Verily was one of the first companies under Alphabet to seek outside investment that's not from, not from Google. And the reason for that was to, and I think they've raised over a billion, almost $2 billion from outside investment. The reason for that was to validate the business model and to validate the vision that Verily had you know, outside of Google. If other people believe it and other people see it, see the value in it, then it must mean that there's, there's something there, or at least people are willing to take a risk on that, that, uh, that vision. Um, and so I think the creativity and how Verily has been expanding its business was part of the formation of 2020 Therapeutics. So the opportunity came to work with a, a world-leading pharmaceutical company, Santen, focused specifically in eye care, and to pair that with Verily's expertise in you know, machine learning, AI, medical devices, technology, and to create a, a joint venture between Santen and Verily where you can bring the best of both companies and really focus it just in eye care. And th- that was a little bit of a tougher thing to do within Verily, right? Given the, the broad mandate that Verily had. But this joint venture structure enables us to focus really um, in, a, in a really concrete way in eye care and really tackle that market in a way that it deserves. And so that joint venture 2020 therapeutics was formed uh, in 2020. So they, just a year, a year or so ago. Hmm. And it sort of had a double entendre, you know, formed in 2020, but also we're tackling vision. So we're trying to restore uh, 2020 vision. Um, and, uh, and, and the goal of 2020 is to um, really improve, uh, restore, and extend uh, eyesight to the world, um, bringing together and based on digital technologies broadly. So it's uh, more like a device-oriented company. Not necessarily. No, no, no. Uh, digital digital technology we understand to be broad. It's not devices. Um, it could also be software. It could also be interfaces and ecosystems. You know, the, the the way that people are interacting with healthcare today extends much more than devices, right? People are doing things online. They're mm-hmm. looking at data. They're consuming in different ways. Um, and so I think the, when we say sort of digital ophthalmology or digital eye care, it's it's all of the above. It, devices are part of that, but it's not the only part of the digital experience. But not like developing drugs or... So uh, it's an interesting question because right? our name does have therapeutics in it, right? So when you typically hear therapeutics, you think of, oh, you're developing drugs. Mm-hmm. The, the therapeutics part of the 2020 is 
you're, you're right. It's not that we are developing drugs from scratch. We're not going to be a, a biotech necessarily, mm-hmm. but we do participate in therapy. And the way we participate in therapy is, is in a couple different ways. So we can partner, for example, Santen is a pharmaceutical company, right? So we can partner with companies that have drugs um, and we can then pair them with our technologies to either enhance uh, or to provide novel therapeutic avenues. And what I mean by that is drug, you know, drug delivery is one, one aspect. Um, if we're not doing drug delivery, we are, for example, enhancing the drug adherence for example, is another area, um, or we are providing data and information that's going to be useful to development of the, the next generation of, of medication, right? So we are playing in the therapeutic space without necessarily being a biotech or uh, an API creator ourselves. Yeah. And that, that is, I think that there is the big unmet need, right? Because when it comes to the AI, drug delivery, it's a real challenge because like, you know, it's, it's small, but it's quite well contained, you know, if you put a drop in the eye and it won't always like get inside or at least not in quantities that will reach therapeutic levels. So like, I mean, there are drugs out there that could be useful for, for, for eye diseases, but there's no way of getting them in. That's exactly right. I guess that's the gap that you're going to put into. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of great, great drugs out there that work if people take them, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is the other, the other big challenge that I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with. And yeah. so, so you can, you can focus on developing novel therapies, but if you run up against the same issue that folks aren't taking the medication, mm-hmm. then, then how effective is that therapy? Right? So when we think about a, a digital ophthalmology approach, yes, part of it is the therapy side and developing new, new avenues there, but also part of it is, you know, how can we use, how can we use technology today to enhance uh, therapies that exist? Because you know, a lot of people are used to, to eye drops, but it's it's well understood. That's a poor mechanism, a poor adherence mechanism in the long term. And so there's a big opportunity to, for example, create uh, the potential for, for new for, for enhanced therapies overall. If it's combined with a digital experience where that digital experience is promoting the patient taking that medication more. And it's not just a simple reminder. Hey, you know, I have an alarm clock. Take your medication. That, that clearly uh, only has very limited benefit, but what we're interested in is, is more comprehensive digital experiences that can, for example, change behavior, right? There's a famous uh, study from the, the World Health Organization that talks about what are the biggest determinants of, of health, right? And about 20% of what determines your health, your overall health is, you know, medical care. So what the doctor is doing for you, what they're prescribing, what practitioners do and the drugs that you take. The other 20, 30% is purely about diet, exercise, lifestyle, uh, you know, mindfulness, things that things of that nature, not, not smoking. And then the other uh, rest of that is uh, the third or so is going to be environmental, genetic, and social. And so we always, in the industry broadly thinks a lot about that 20%. What is the doctor doing? What is the drug that's being prescribed? And kind of that, that's it. But the other sort of 80% of somebody's medical care, overall healthcare experience has very little to do with, with what the doctor does and what the drug is doing like right now. It's all these other things. Yeah. And that's the opportunity that, that we see without necessarily creating new medications. Can we provide digital solutions for all these other areas that are a big part of somebody's uh, healthcare? And, and can that be augmented? Because I think if you augment that other sort of 70% of the, the medical care ecosystem through digital technology, you can have a much bigger impact, we believe. Yeah, and I agree 100% with that. Remember my days of like, I mean, see patients, you know, I just 
you know, you, you, you see a diabetic patient and it's like, okay, you got to control your diet and you got to do this. Good luck. Like, you know, I mean, we don't actually help them to achieve that in any way other than telling them what they need to do. Right. Like 95% of the time is they're at home, they're in their social circles yeah. and they spend, you know, 1% with, with the doctor. Yeah. And then like this person experience, like I've been using those trackers now, right? That you put in the wrist and another you know, like, I mean, it tracks you continuously, gives some feedback on how good your sleep is. And like, I mean, I've always been like health conscious, but like now that I have a feedback, like, so come the next day, as I call your sleep were not, was not great. And then like, what did you do? You know, is then maybe you ate too late or, you know, like, I mean, you had to be more like wine that you should, or you work too late or you were on your phone. And then you see right away that feedback. It's like, okay, you harm your sleep. Like, I mean, that, that it's much more efficient you know, on, on like uh, uh, changing your behavior. You know? Sure. But yeah, part of it is, is putting the patient in control and seeing what, what's actually happening to them through, through data and through insights. Um, I think the, 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 you know, the other part is uh, helping them through navigating that behavior change or, or navigating to some, to a healthier lifestyle, because that's not easy to do. Right. Yeah. But, but there's a lot of experience and understanding of techniques and methods that do promote that. So we're seeing this, and this is, this is an area that I have sort of particular interest in, which is the area of digital therapies, digital therapeutics. Um, you know, there's a lot of longstanding research that's understanding uh, how to slowly um, change somebody's behavior in a positive way. And so you'd be surprised how, how much of that is connected to, to psychological cues, how much of that is connected to their support system, the family and, and people around them, how much of that is connected to the types of technologies and, and uh, interface points that people are using during the day, whether it's a text message or whether it's your computer or whether it's none of those, right? It's the phone. Um, how much of that you can be, can be used to, to slowly have people adopt new, healthier lifestyle uh, habits? Because that's a hard thing to do. But if you can do that and you can empower them with visibility into their own data, and we'll use the, the example of glaucoma, for example, right? Glaucoma is, is a really tough disease. Um, and one of the big challenges is that it, there's no there's no ocular pain. There's no sort of immediate uh, vision loss. I mean, once you start getting vision loss, you're sort of, you know, really too, too far along. But in, in the first years of, of receiving a glaucoma diagnosis, there's really nothing a doctor can point to visibly for the patient to say, look, you're, you're, you're making great progress, right? Because great progress would mean that your vision is staying the same. <laughs> it's not getting worse. Yeah. And so for the patient, what is, what is, what do they need? What do they see as progress? How do they know they're making progress? It's hard. So if you can give them visibility into that through data or through measurement and uh, also promote healthy behaviors that and entice them to, you know, be adherent to their medication, improve their lifestyle, that combination of factors, you know, that sort of ecosystem of, of digital inputs can actually have a better therapeutic outcome, long-term outcome than a drug alone or, or the paradigm that we use today alone, for example. And that's a really exciting area for us. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a great statement right there. You know, like, I mean, for us to start to wrap up like, our, our chat, you know, that took a lot of your time. Uh, Chris, and thank you very much for what you shared today, man. Those are very exciting chats. You know, like I, I hope to have, maybe bring you in the future. You know, like, I mean, after you start, actually releasing like i mean some of your products like i mean i'm, I'm excited to see what's going to come out of this absolutely no thank you for having me it was, it was great it was fun all right have a good day man thanks you too
Bye-bye. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.